Good morning. How are you guys doing? It's just, uh, I'm overwhelmed with emotions and just honored to be up here. And I asked Cindy, I said, what do you want me to tell our church family? And she said, tell them I love them. She goes, you know, we, we started coming in during the pandemic. She goes, tell them that I left a denomination I was at the whole, my whole life. I was scared, I was afraid, I was anxious. And this church enveloped us and her with love that's unimaginable. And we left a denomination and dear friends. And the friendship and the relationships and the depth of the spirit here and the depth of biblical knowledge is incredible. And she just said, tell them I love them. It's important before we get into the scripture to give some historical context regarding the church of Smyrna. A perspective of a church living in a very pagan world at the time. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was the second stop in the seventh church postal route in Asia Minor, the messengers traveled to give the letters and the book of Revelation that John had written. And it's one of the two churches that stood apart by not being rebuked by Christ. The other church was Philadelphia. The church of Smyrna was under intense persecution. Historical evidence bears that out. Smyrna means bitter. The same word as myrrh. Myrrh that was given by the wise man to the Christ child. Myrrh that was offered to Christ while he was on the cross. Myrrh that Nicodemus brought to use as an embalming spice as they wrapped Jesus' dead body in the tomb. Myrrh had to be crushed for the fragrance to be released just like what was happening to the Christians in Smyrna. They were being crushed. The city of Smyrna lay in ruin in 580 BC and came back to life three centuries before Christ with the, with the um, urging of Alexander the Great. It was a test city for antiquity urban planners. A thriving port city in Asia Minor, now Izmir, Turkey, in Turkey, the city became a very important trading route for the Romans and the empire. It possessed a large stadium, a lot of libraries, a museum. It became the crown jewel of Asia Minor. However, the urban planners overlooked the sewers at that time, and so when it rained or the wind blew, the stench was terrible. It was a city of 100,000 people at that time. It's now 500,000 people. It had a diverse population. Greco-Roman culture was dominant as well as a large Jewish population. It was very cosmopolitan and a very pluralistic society like LA or Chicago or New York or Miami of today. It was a proud city proud of its culture, its beauty, and its wealth. It was a very pagan culture with a lot of temples to gods. And in our Sunday morning class a couple weeks ago, we discussed the gospel in a pluralistic society where the late Timothy Keller says, we forget today that the early Christian church started and thrived in the very culture environment we face as Christians today in Western culture. Christians were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and made universal tr truth claims that there was only one savior, Jesus Christ. They were not willing to keep their faith private, nor did they compromise on these truth claims. They did not accept the culture belief that all religions are true. You can have your own God or gods as long as you still worship the state religion, which is Caesar is Lord, 
which at that time was a bloodthirsty Emperor Domitian. Because of these public universal objective truth claims about Jesus Christ, the Christians were in direct conflict with the culture and the institutions that controlled the culture and the power, those who possessed the power. So the Christians in Smyrna were severely persecuted, burned at the stake, crucified, wrapped with animal skins and wild dogs released to kill them. They were ostracized from society, pushed to the margins, driven to the point of poverty, starvation, and death. This is the church of Smyrna under unbearable pressure when the letter from Christ arrives. Smyrna is the picture of what a church should be, a dynamic witness for Jesus Christ through all circumstances, no matter the trial, who loves the Lord deeply to stand up for him publicly and, our fa- and keep our faith and profess our faith even if we're attacked. That's what Smyrna and the early church was dealing with. So let's read Revelations 2, 8 through 11. Just a few short verses, but man, are they powerful. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. This morning, I want to, it's incredible message of hope from our Savior to us, and I want to share three points. The promise of divine providence, providence being care, guardianship, or direction. The promise of divine providence. The promise of divine riches and the promise of the divine everlasting. Let us pray. Lord, you love us. Thank you for the gift of your word, timeless in its application. Please get the teacher out of the way. May the Holy Spirit lead. I pray, Lord, that you teach us with your Holy Spirit. Fill your church with this glorious and hopeful message the proclamation of your truth and love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have a question for you. I'm gonna ask you a question. Upon reflection, what would you tell your 18-year-old self today, at this time? And I understand some of you are probably 18. I Great. <laughs> Close to it. What would you tell your 18-year-old self t- today at this time in your life? In two weeks, I'm going to be celebrating one of those milestone birthdays you hope you make it to. My birthday has become, though, more of reflection and contemplation of the passage in time and life not because the years are passing quickly, though they are, but because my mother died four years ago on my birthday. It's a quirk of life. So Cindy and I talk about how 
this birthday, as it approaches, it becomes more about memories and reflection for us. It's just difficult to explain. And so, I was showing my age last Sunday when I brought up Peter Frampton, a line from a lyric in a song by Peter Frampton, and I got deer in the headlight looks. I'm like, Frampton, Peter, come on, how do you spell it? I, I'm like, Frampton comes alive, nobody knows the 20 million copies of albums everybody had back, anybody know Peter Frampton? I'm just curious. Google him, incredible. There's a song by the Canadian band Saga, which you probably haven't heard, but comes to mind about an older man mentally seeing images of his life that dissolves into one and the boy he once was. See the boy in his eyes. Remember other times. I fall inside reflecting eyes. And this is what's happening to me as my birthday approaches. On reflection, what I would tell my 18-year-old self today when it comes to my Christian faith journey and its ups and downs and pauses when I was younger, is there are times in life where your faith will pass through and be tested by the furnace of affliction and unbearable trials. And the question is, will your faith hold? Will it hold? Is it anchored on the high, hard, and holy ground like the early Christians in Smyrna? I would tell my 18-year-old self, Christ's words in verses eight and nine are an incredible, timeless message that you need to hold on to and remember in times of difficulty. It's a promise of divine providence. It's a transcendent, hopeful message a transcendent message from a transcendent savior to refocus our vision, to look beyond our present circumstances. And to the angel of church in Smyrna write the words of the, the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. When times get difficult, painful, anxious, perhaps living with unbearable hurt or loss, we can feel alone in our trials, on our own, made even more difficult in a culture that more and more wants to deconstruct everything. We want definition. We want to define and limit everything to our understanding, our control, and on our time of our choosing. We want immediate answers in a Surrey world. When life has gut-punched me and gut-punched our family over the years, the, as a young man, the sudden death of my father, my mother passing, Cindy's father doing that long journey of dementia and Alzheimer's, the time and uh, for a few years of our son dealing with brain cancer. I have this selfish and arrogant tendency to want to interview God. God, have a seat. I have this wish list of things I want answers to or argue about with you. Job took that approach, and in Job 37... God answers him by giving Job a cosmic tour of the universe and his creation. Questioning Job, reminding Job, I am God and you are not, before he rebuilt him. Christ, in verse eight, reminds us to change our perspective. Christ introduces himself and highlights his internal majesty. Jesus alone possesses eternity. His presence covers all problems, circumstances, and troubles in human life. He is controlling the grand narrative and divine plan. Jesus expressed what God stated in Isaiah 44 and 48, I am the first and the last, and there is no other God besides me. He transcends our temporary matters and problems. In verse eight, the words of the first 
is fully God, the creator who transcends all time, space, and creation, the eternal God, and the words, the last who came to life, the last, he is the eternal God, everlasting existence who entered time and space and revealed and was revealed as a man in Jesus Christ, as God incarnate, who died and came back to life in his resurrection. Came to life is a Greek tense, meaning once and for all act. Once, done, completed, finished. In Hebrews 7, 18, he rose by the power of his endless or indestructible life. Death was a passing episode. Jesus Christ possesses life inexhaustible. And so the message to the church of Smyrna and to us is no matter the experience, even death, it's been conquered by Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ who accepts Christ as his or her savior will live forever, eternal life. Life inexhaustible. Life forever. And we can take comfort that us as finite beings are known and can touch the infinite Lord on a personal level. After hearing a scene in a Western novel shared by a pastor 40 years ago, I may show my age. Anybody remember Norman Vincent Peale? A few hands. Everybody else is going, Google it. I don't know who it is. I read the book Wildfire by Zane Gray, probably the most famous Western writer. Wildfire describes a cowboy, a rider of the Old West, and his pursuit of a wild horse in the Western United States, a great big red stallion. He had to have this horse. This determined rider follows the wild stallion through Nevada and Utah and Arizona. And having lived 22 years of my life in Colorado, I'm familiar with the Four Corners region of Utah. I hope I remember this. Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. Gray brilliantly describes the rugged landscape. You can see and smell the sagebrush, the wild tumbleweeds, the peaks, the mesas, the domes, the crags, and the sound of the wild. This hard-bitten, intervert, sun-baked rider of the plains comes across this enormous abyss in the ground with the distant sound of rushing water. He had stumbled onto the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River for the first time. Looking at this rugged beauty and the kaleidoscope of colors, the wide open skies, the endless horizons, the cowboy's sight dimmed and the spectacle before him became blurry. This lonely, unemotional, dust-covered rider of the West, eyes, were bathed in tears, gazing at the vastness and the grandeur of the scene before him. Oh, the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable are your ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, amen. That's Paul's words in Romans 11. This rugged horse sensed that he, this rugged rider, sensed that he was in the presence of something remarkable, someone greater than him, who transcends all experience that he's realized and that he's living in a grand narrative that is beyond his understanding with a God distinctly beyond us. He realized he was not alone. He was never alone. And Christ tells the church of Smyrna and to you, you are not alone. You are never alone. There are times where I've learned you have to sit with endurance and patience in the mystery of Christ's unsearchable judgments and his unfathomable ways and trust him. Trust him. Trust his divine providence 
and his plans for you. Why? He said, I know. I know your tribulation. He knows what you're going through. He knows every detail of your life. He knows where this is all going before we do. The question is, do you believe what he says? Do you believe it? He reminds us he died on a human level. He knows how it feels to be betrayed. Deal with physical pain. Mental anguish and abuse. And to suffer at the deepest levels of the human experience. He knows. He chose to take the weight of human suffering, all of our pain, all of our sin, all of our suffering unto himself in the great exchange on the cross. Jesus conquered all of it through his resurrection. No other religion and no other religion founder took on this great exchange that Christ did. And this sitting and trusting in Jesus Christ in our tribulations, we can gain inner poise, inner strength, endurance, a stronger heart and soul that moves us to love beyond ourselves while bearing it all. We are driven to his grace where our inner ego is humbled. These are the blessings of being in Christ. Jesus recognized the church of Smyrna's intense tribulation. Tribulation in Greek means crushed, pressed down, squashed. And he used several words to describe it. Tribulation, testing, um, slander, suffer, prison, death. It's all in this letter. The elites in Smyrna culture were the ones that were coming to the faith and were converting to Christianity and became impoverished for their faith. The Greek word used for poverty in verse nine is tutohos. It means a person reduced to begging, destitute of all resources, one who's lost all or most of his family and social ties, bereft of any social support. They had nothing and yet they refused to denounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Smyrna was a big trading port. And so there was many trade skills, and in order to be part of that, you had to join a guild. And part of the guild's requirement is you had some type of worship commitment to a pagan god or to Caesar, and if you weren't part of that or you didn't want to do that, you were not allowed to be in that guild. And so all economic life was cut off from them. The Christian believers in Smyrna would not pay homage to these worship requirements. Their reputation was slandered, but what they say is a large Jewish population. A Jewish population that theologians say was not the Jewish population of the traditional Old Testament Jewish, Jewish faith, who were slandering their reputation and persecuting them and, join, and joining with the other religions. And so Christ says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In other words, what Christ is saying, he was using those to do the bidding of Satan and the evil that comes with it. But also notice that jumped out to me, Christ didn't say, leave the city. He didn't say, go into hiding. He didn't say, flee. He didn't say go into self-protection or try to gain power. He didn't say that. He didn't give him that option. He said in verse 10, do not fear what you are going to suffer. In other words, Jesus said it was going to get worse. In fact, the persecution continued for several more decades. After this letter, there was the bishop of the church, one of the early church fathers, the bishop of the Smyrna church, Polycarp. And this is an historical fact. He was arrested and taken to the arena to be burned at the stake. 
And on the way, the Roman proconsul pleaded with Polycarp, renounce Christ. Just renounce him. Have respect for your old age, he said. Swear by the fortune of Caesar's repent and say, down with the atheist. The Christians were called the atheists at that time because they didn't believe in the Roman deities. Down with the atheists, Polycarp instead grimly looks out at this mass of humanity in the arena and points to them and says, down with the atheist. The proconsul pleaded, reproach, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. 86 years I've served him, he said, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then with a loud voice, clear as a bell, he yelled, I declare to you, I am a Christian. Polycarp and the impoverished church in Smyrna knew the relationship in Jesus. The real wealth was where the riches were, his promise of the real riches. But you are rich, Christ proclaims. The Greek word means you're extremely well off. And he's talking about it's applied throughout the New Testament as being spiritually rich. Jesus is making it clear to the church of Smyrna that was materially impoverished, they were spiritually rich. They were deprived of the material goods. They were deprived of legal protection. They were faceless, but they had their identity in Jesus Christ. They didn't have their identity in the world and what it admires. They didn't have their identity in how many clicks and likes and views I'm getting on Instagram and Facebook or what's going on with um, TikTok. That's not where their identity was. They had meaningful levels of fellowship. They lent encouragement to each other. They prayed with each other and emotionally gave support to each other at a depth that you just cannot measure material. And the same thing goes on here in the small groups. I can't describe it. Gotta live it. Gotta live it. It's beyond what the world can offer from a material standpoint. A richness in spiritual rewards. The Holy Spirit flooded them with Christ's presence, his grace, and his power to endure. He goes and says, you may get thrown in prison. And it can last 10 days. And he adds, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The devil will continue to rouse the masses and attack him. And 10 meant brevity, that it will pass. But no, Christ also allows the persecution to happen. He says, you're gonna, it's gonna happen. Why did he allow that? He was allowing them to be tried that could lead to a closer walk with them. And their faith could be strengthened to become a stronger witness for him. Revelation 12, 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Influenced by the trappings of the devil or this world, God allows us to make choices that could put us in our own prisons and test us. It could be mental, emotional, physical prisons, Addictions, anger issues, hate, indifference, whatever. It could be a prison of our own choosing or your family or friends. What is maybe imprisoning you today? Through Christ, those prison doors can be broken down and crushed and the healing can happen. He will rebuild you. This self-imprisonment will pass. Turn all you have, all of your life over to Christ and let the healing begin, and be faithful. Be faithful, the promise of an everlasting life awaits, a crown of life. It's not a king's crown, but a victor's wreath on you. It's earned by being faithful unto death, or as Paul said in 2 Timothy, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, and there's a crown of righteousness for me. Isn't it great that Christ didn't leave us with, uh, hey, deal with it, deal with it. I know what's going on, hey, just deal with it. 
He told the church of Smyrna and us, if you can endure the persecution, whatever form that may be, a crown of life awaits. An everlasting life in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Life inexhaustible. And this promise extends with the reassurance that though unbelievers will be cast in the lake of fire and damnation on the second death that he mentions in the last verse, our mortal bodies will experience eternal glory with no threat of death or damnation, period. We are secured in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I started this sermon with a question, and I want to finish it with a couple of questions. If Jesus wrote you a letter today, what would he say to you? If Jesus wrote a letter to the bridge, what would they say about us, or what would he say about us? And where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? C.S. Lewis gave a famous sermon in 1941, The Weight of Glory. Read it. It's one of the more famous sermons of the 20th century. It was set, he was done in 1941 when World War I, or World War II was starting, or raging at that point. And he reflects on what the glory of God means in human terms. Glory in terms of fame is not what he's talking about when it comes to the glory of God. Lewis says the brightness and splendor are, meant, are what is meant by the glory of God that shines in us. When saved, God marks us as his own and recognizes us. And he says there's two Hebrew words for glory. One means weight or substance, and the other one means a presence or a visible manifestation, a display of God that's evident in us. So the glory of God, he's saying, is where the substance and presence of God dwells. It's being created in God's image and accepting Christ, and we are to embody that essential splendor, this brightness of God's substance and presence, and to be his voice in a lost and confused culture. That's what Lewis was saying in his sermon. Understanding that this is one of God's intentions for our life is significant as we live out our Christian faith in a pluralistic society that more and more says, you need to keep your faith private. Lewis goes on and says in the ending of his sermon, meanwhile the cross comes before the crown. And tomorrow is Monday morning, he said. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world and we are invited to follow our great captain, Jesus Christ inside. What he is saying is, as a Christian, we are to carry the narrative of God's glory into this world filled, that's filled with darkness and confusion. We are to be the manifestation, the display of his substance and presence in our life, the splendor, and we are to become his voice, to be made known throughout our community and in our culture. And he says we should gain the reputation of Acts 17, 6 of the early Christians where they, where they were called, these were the people who turned the world upside down, Acts 17, 6. We are the light of the world to pierce the conscience of a lost culture and the pitiless walls he references, he's talking about the culture that more and more is chosen to go alone, separate from God. We should go with assurance that as we live outside of the world's favor, Jesus Christ knows the cost we're going to go through to follow him. And that your best days are not behind you, but in front of you. You are resting in his love and grace and mercy and redemption Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ as your Savior and be faithful to him until death. May God bless you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this letter to a church that was purified through tribulation underscores you know exactly all that is taking place. 
Your sovereignty is always happening and has a purpose, and it has a purpose in our lives. And that we're given a glimpse of what those before us face and the fortitude that they possess to help us to be a triumphant and faithful church for your glory today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning we have the opportunity to respond to what Dan has just said and pro proclaimed through God's word. Um, every time that the gospels preach, we have an invitation to respond. And when Dan talks, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm getting a higher level of training. <laughs> I, 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 I feel like in some ways, and this is, a, this is a compliment, I feel like I'm in seminary. I'm getting some really like solid verbiage, some solid uh, vocabulary. Like it's, it's just every word packed with so much meaning. And uh, this is not to pick on you. This, I appreciate your testimony this morning. I'm blessed by God and the way his spirit moves. And knowing that he wants Dan's voice this morning to speak in the same way that I feel like this simpleton speaks it at times. So hear this right. When you were speaking about the, the weight of God's glory and C.S. Lewis and how he proclaimed that, I smiled because I'm like, even the scholar has trouble, right? C.S. Lewis, you were just saying his words. That C.S. Lewis has trouble describing in words what God's glory is. Because it's so big. And yet, while Dan was saying those things, thank God he's given me the ability, not just in my intellect to understand those words, but in my heart to, to have experienced those things that talk about his substance and his presence. That as you're sharing that, I'm just smiling because I'm like, God knows how to get that message to us. He knows how to communicate his glory to us. And he did that through his son, Jesus. So that's what, I shake my head because it's like, that's why we try so hard. We so try so hard to figure out, how do I tell my friend that God loves him? How do I tell my family that God loves him? How do I believe that God loves me? And Jesus has already done it. He's already showed that he loves us. How did he do that? He gave his life. It wasn't easy for him. He experienced every human feeling and emotion that you and I can experience in that moment, in that passion story where he displayed his passion for us through his suffering and death on a cross. That was the culmination. Everything that Dan was talking about points to Jesus saying, I love you in this moment. I love you in your suffering. And I've expressed that through my suffering as a human being. And uh, we need to sit with that. We need to hear that. So it's a quick clarifier, but it makes the point. So I'm a captain, but I'm a captain at a fire department. That's not the same as a captain on a ship. And C.S. Lewis was talking about a captain on a ship because I got chiefs over me. On a ship, the captain is the, that's the final word. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to say about Jesus. Jesus is the captain. He's the one with the final word. And here's how much he loved this whole boat mess of people and everybody else in the world is that he said, you know what? They're all going down unless I go down for them first. And he took the fall. What we read in Genesis chapter three, that was all God saying, hey, you know what's gonna happen? I'm going to get the last word. And then we read the Bible and we keep going and we see this covenant God makes with us and how he plays that out. And there's every story in scripture is to remind us that the Savior's coming. This is going to be his ultimate job once and for all to save us. And Jesus has displayed that through his death, his crucifixion, through his advent, through his life, through his suffering through his death and then through his resurrection and ascent into heaven. All those things speak, but what speaks most strongly to me and you? Would you believe that God loved you infinitely if we just talked about he just rose, became a king? What speaks to me is that the captain, the, the highest of all said, I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to take the second death that you deserve and I'm going to receive that judgment on myself so that you would never receive that, John. You'll never receive that, Dan. You'll never receive that, Prene, and go around the room 
because I love you. I'm taking that on myself. And so we look forward to the crown of life. We look forward to what God is going to give us in eternal glory with him, right? That starts now, but we'll experience it fully in the hereafter. And what I want you to understand today is that we're going to say some words of institution in a little while, and it's going to talk about how this communion table is a chance to respond to his invitation. He invites us to this communion table so that we can receive this message of love from Jesus. And at the end of those words of institution, it says that this proclaims his death until he comes. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't say, Jesus didn't say. And it's going to talk about how I'm coming, I'm coming again and all these other things. It said, I'm, it's going to proclaim my death until I come. So what does he want us to hear? That he died for us. Because every time we hear that, we're supposed to hear what? I love you. I love you. You don't believe it? I, I love you. I died for you. Every time we come to this table, we're supposed to hear his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. I love you. I love you. And that's Jesus saying that, not me. That's Jesus saying that. And then as we experience his love, we begin to speak and, and act and do those things in the same way where people feel the love of Jesus through us, through like what Dan did here. So emboldened by the Holy Spirit to speak this testimony today. It's no accident. I was thinking as he was sharing, the last time he spoke, he spoke on immense suffering. And I don't remember the scripture passage. I remember, Dan, what he shared. And I was saying then today to go and talk about the church at Smyrna. Uh, maybe that was planned. I don't know. But the Holy Spirit brought that. And then that's all wrapped together. And it's a beautiful thing. So coming back to this invitation to respond to communion, we invite you today to, to take this communion as a, as a congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we take communion, we're called to do that to examine ourselves. The examination is simply this. Do I believe that, do I believe that Jesus' body was broken for me? Do I believe that Jesus' blood was shed for me? And if you believe that, if your trust is placed in that truth, then this is for you, and you should take it. It's, a, it, it's so you'll be reminded again, he loves you. So you're going to be invited to that this morning. We do it simply. We'll have someone dismissing the rows, and if you feel called to get up and come out, and I'm going to ask the people who are going to help me serve community, you can come on up here this morning. But when you come out, there'll be a person holding a piece of bread or some bread here. There'll be somebody holding a cup, and we just take that bread, we dip it in the cup, and then partake that yourself as you're here prayerfully thinking about what God has done in your life through Jesus' body and his blood shed for you and me. And I pray that you and I, this is for me too, guys, that we will hear God saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Every time those things happen this morning. So this morning, you're invited to that. And I've just felt compelled to say this. I have a niece. I saw her the other night. We went to eat some pizza with a friend. And whenever we went to that um, pizza place, uh, we were sitting down. And I was remembering the last time she had mentioned having to sit across from me. And she, 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 she luckily got to sit at the other end of the table. And she said, good. I was getting scared for a second. I was going to have to sit by Uncle John. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't know what that is. Like, I, and, I, and I, I, nothing about her. It was like, I, I, I've been an intimidating presence in her life at some point because I know she meant that when she said that. And I somehow felt like I've done something over the years, physically, whatever, that made her feel like he's, he's trouble. Don't sit by him. He might get up and get fired up about something. I don't know. But what I wanted to say that for was not to be funny or not to point the finger at me, but it was to say that is what Jesus is trying to help us see. Because I would want my niece to know nothing more than I got your back. I love you. I'm here to help you feel safe and protect you. And I do that so imperfectly that someone who's close to me would even feel for a minute that that's the scary place to sit across from me. Jesus is conquered that for you and me. In that he has displayed himself with complete love, amazing grace. These elements represent that amazing love, amazing grace. In that none of us should be seeing Jesus. None of us should see Jesus and see, oh no, don't set me next to him. I was getting nervous. I thought I was going to have to get close to Jesus today. That's, that's, that's the enemy's perspective. That's a, that's a twisted word. 
The word from Jesus is full of grace and truth. Amazing love is put on display by these elements this morning that represent his body broken, his blood that was shed. So I'm going to invite you to take it with us this morning. Before, uh, before I say the words of the institution, just pray with me. God, thank you so much for the way that you have displayed your love to us through your son, Jesus. You kept it very simple for those of us who are human beings and we go through the furnace of affliction as Dan talked about today. And our faith is tested. You kept it so simple. And yet, it's so complicated, it's hard to put into words what you've done to communicate your love to us so that when we can't even think straight, we would know that you love us because your son gave his life for us. And God, while we take this communion today, let each person hear what your gospel's communicating to them. And for those who, this isn't for them today, they, they don't trust your son and what you've done, I pray that you would give them faith to believe in your son Jesus and change their life forevermore through that faith in Christ pray this in Jesus name one thing I didn't say this morning was if you or feel convicted to sit in your seat for any reason I shared this once before don't look around and be like hey you know why are they sitting down they didn't get up when I got up here's the thing I said one time I had a bad knee and I, I didn't I really didn't feel like I was able to walk up here and I didn't know if people would understand so there's all kinds of reasons why someone might stay in their seat don't judge that that's an individual thing between each person to decide if this is something that you need to get up for at this moment or not. God knows your heart. Don't worry about the people around you. But if God's calling you to respond to this in this moment, you feel free to come with us this morning. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we're told that he took the bread. And when he had broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also... He took the cup, and when he given thanks, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, as we take these things, remember there is a promise that he is coming again, and that's to give us hope. That's to give us confidence for today. So we invite you to respond this morning. now. 
something Dan said about um, in the scripture talks about how they are going to face trials and tribulations and that God did not take them out of that, that they were there 
And I wonder, you know, how, how we perceive that. But I do know that as you grow in Christ, your faith should hopefully grow. And that the only thing we can do is just keep our eyes on him. And that if we keep our eyes on God, our faith will grow, our trust will grow, and we'll be able to make it through those times that are so difficult because he is the God that is in control of the wind and the waves. And he's in control of so much more than that. Let's pray sometime. that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea through it all through it all my eyes are on you through it all through it all it is well through it
Apostle John, he also wrote in 1 John, a book that was saturated with words about God's love. And what he said was, Jesus would come and his work would be to, to destroy the works of the devil. Guys, I am more convinced than ever in my life at this point in my journey that it is through his love that he conquers over the enemy. Last week, I remember hearing the words sung up here, I love you, Jesus, I love you, I love you. I wrote these words down. And then the response, because you first loved me. It's echoed in my mind all week. It's captivated my heart all week. It's captured my attention all week at a moment when I needed it. God is calling out to you today saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Do you know I love you? Everything that we've done here today is to remind us of that. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus as you go from here. I'm going to ask you to receive this benediction with me. I'm repeating the words that Dan said at the end of his message. God, help us to rest in Jesus' love. Help us to rest in Jesus' grace. Help us to find our rest in Jesus' mercy, in Jesus' redemption. And God, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and remain faithful even unto death. Go in peace.